This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hello, and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us and for following Working Like Dogs on Instagram and Facebook. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis, and my co-host is my amazing service dog, Lovey. And we're excited to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today we're going to be talking with Dr. Clive Wynn. And Dr. Wynn is the founding director of the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University. And he's published pieces in Psychology Today, New Scientist, and the New York Times. And he's also appeared on National Geographic Explorer, PBS, and the BBC. And today he's joining us to talk about his new book, Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. So I know I'm excited to hear about this, and I bet you are too. So come right back after these quick messages as we welcome Dr. Clive Wynn to the show. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. We're so thrilled to have Dr. Wynn with us today. Hello, Dr. Wynn, and welcome. Marcy, fantastic to be with you. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, well, we're so excited to talk about your new book, which I just love, which, of course, I love the cover because it has a black lab on it, which is what my lovey is. So, of course, I'm very, very favorable toward that. But I have to ask you, Dr. Wynn, in your new book, you say that love, you know, that it's love, not intelligence or submissiveness that lies at the heart of our human-canine relationship. Please tell me, what do you mean by that? And how did you come to that profound conclusion? Yeah, sure. Right, Marcy. Well, I know, you know, a lot of you have a service dog, and I'm sure many of your listeners have service dogs too. And service dogs are an exceptional example of just how intelligent dogs can be. and. Yeah the absolutely fantastic things that dogs can do for us human beings when they're carefully trained. But I think it would be a mistake to overlook the contribution that the human makes to the training, right? The human has to think out the program of training. I mean, over many years, some very smart people have thought how to train dogs to do the things that we need them to do. 
And in actuality, people do train other species to do very similar things. You know, you can you come across, they're less common, but you come across assistance horses and assistance pigs. And, you know, many years ago in a different life on a different continent, I used to train pigeons and rats to do things just for scientific research. And you find that actually very many animals can be trained to do wonderful things. The reason, though, that we have service dogs, I'm convinced, then, is not because the dog has any exceptional intelligence, but because dogs really care about people, that they have this phenomenal motivation to make themselves helpful and to be in a loving relationship with a human being. And that, to my mind, is actually where the difference between dogs and other animals lies, not in their intelligence, not that I'm saying dogs are stupid, they're not stupid, obviously, but that's not what's exceptional about them. That's not where they stand out truly from pigs and horses and rats and pigeons and any other animal you might, if you had the patience and the ingenuity, train to do useful things for people. No, the crucial thing is that the dog has this desire to help has this desire to be with their person, to be in a strong emotional relationship. So that's the essence of what I say in my book, Dog is Love. I start out by discussing different ideas that people have had over the decades and indeed centuries to try and understand what makes dogs special. Because it's clear dogs are unique, right? I mean, they have a role life quite unlike that of other animals and to my mind it's the affectionate bond that's unique not the intelligence as such i could not agree with you more i mean i I really as i've been partnered with a service dog for over 25 years and have gone through different personalities with the dogs different breeds of dogs but you're right as you were saying that that desire to help That just still, after all these years, blows me away, Dr. Wynn, when my service dog looks at me in the eye and is so excited to get something that I drop or, you know, to help me get into bed. They're so excited to do that. It just blows me away at that devotion and that authentic love. It's just incredible. And we see it, I think, in some ways, you see it more clearly in dogs that are not trained service dogs because a trained service dog does many things to help its human because it was trained the dog was trained for many months to carry out certain helpful things whereas when an untrained dog tries to help which is often of course ineffective but still when an untrained dog is trying that's just because they care it's not anything to do with any program or training that they went through they just care And there is a very, I love, you know, I mean, I'm a scientist, Marcy. And so, you know, for me, it's always about the science. But I love scientific studies that are so simple that anybody can try them for themselves, right? And so there's one beautiful study out of London, England. All you do is you sit down on the couch and pretend to cry. And (laughs) your dog, you know, you you could do this once. I'm willing to let anybody do this once. But I actually think it's cruel. So I I would discourage anybody from doing it more than once because your dog is clearly, I mean, the best way, if since when you're pretending to cry, you probably have your eyes closed or mostly closed. It's a good idea to set up your um, a camera like your, your, just your cell phone, right? The camera on your cell phone. So put it on a shelf somewhere, prop it up with some books so you can catch a video of what your dog is doing while you're sitting on the couch pretending to cry. 
and your dog's whole body language says that he or she is deeply, deeply upset and distressed that you are in distress. And, you know, that's science. And yet anybody can try it for themselves. And it's really striking. And that's not because the dog was trained, not because the dog expects to get anything for doing this. The dog is just infected by your apparent distress. Yeah, it's just so beautiful. Well, uh, you're saying as a scientist, Dr. Wynn, tell us how the study of dogs really has changed over the last 10 to 15 years. What are you seeing from your perspective? Well, for me, Marcy, so... So, uh you know, you have to cut me off when you need to, because I love history. history Let's talk about Pavlov, right? I mean, you want to talk about the history of studying dog behavior. So, uh, but let's not talk about Pavlov. You really haven't got time for all of that. But actually, after Pavlov, psychologists, scientists in general sort of forgot about dogs for the best part of a century. And it wasn't until the very end of the 20th century that there was a revival of interest in dogs. And this was two uh, really important behavioral scientists, Adam McClosey in Budapest, Hungary, and Brian Hare, who's an American. He's now at Duke University in North Carolina. And they were both interested in this question, what makes dogs special? What makes dogs unique? What is the secret of dog success in human society? And they started studies in the late 1990s. And my students and I, we started working in the mid-2000s. And we picked up on some of their studies. And they were arguing that dogs had a special kind of intelligence. Brian and Adam were arguing that dogs have developed an exceptional ability to understand people. And my early work went against that. And I really do not think that dogs have a special ability in understanding people. Given that, dogs live in human households. I think any animal that is born in a human household that lives with people all its life can understand what people are doing. So for me, I had a period in the wilderness, and I talk about this in the book, Dog is Love. I had a period in the wilderness where I knew what I didn't believe about dogs' uniqueness. I did not believe that they had a unique intelligence, a unique ability to understand people, but I didn't know what to think. And I could tell, I knew dogs were exceptional, but I couldn't pin down what it was. And then we got a dog ourselves. Now, I've had dogs throughout my life, but I've also had stretches of my life when I just couldn't have a dog. When we first moved to the United States and we weren't sure if we were staying and we had a baby and so on and so on. But there came a point where we got a dog and we we brought this dog home and it was immediately apparent that we had not chosen the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know, it was immediately apparent. She's lying here watching me. It was immediately apparent that we hadn't got ourselves one of those really smart dogs. But, Marcy, the affection that shone out of that little dog and continues to do so. I mean, her her boundless love for us and for people in general. And so I had my work life. I'm at work during the day and I'm thinking and I'm reading scientific papers and developing experiments and thinking about dogs. And I come home and I'm off duty and I just have this dog loving on me um, uninhibitedly. And it actually, it's sort of embarrassing to admit, Marcy, but it took me a little while to realize that my poor silly dog, Zephos, was actually telling me what makes dogs special, what makes dogs unique. But I was being a bit kind of dense and not grasping the essence of what she was conveying to me. And finally, I thought, you know, this is actually a thing. This love that she has for me. This is the thing. 
And so then I started, we started doing our own experiments on dogs' affection for people. I started reading more widely and pulling together evidence from all around the world of many, many different kinds that shows how dogs love people and how that is programmed in every level of their being, from their brains, in their hormones, in their heartbeats, even in their genetic material. And I talk about a study we did where we've actually identified three genes that mutated in the journey from wolf to dog that make it possible for dogs to form these strong bonds with individuals from other species than their own. So cool. Well, I have to ask you, do you think that dogs care more for some people than others? Well, so so dogs in that regard are no different than humans. I mean, all dogs, it seems, well, we don't, I don't know this for a fact. I don't know this for a fact. It's not like we have not tested all dogs, but it seems like dogs as a species have an exceptional potential to form strong emotional bonds. But how that develops, that depends on the structure of their lives. You know, a dog that grows up in a loving household will probably be more loving than a dog that grows up living its whole life, let's say, in some horrible kennel or something. And then for reasons that are just as idiosyncratic as are the preferences that we human beings have for each other, dogs, of course, form different kinds of relationships with different individuals. Poor Zephos is always a little bit anxious around men who have beards. I don't know why. I mean, she has a beard herself. You wouldn't think it would bother her that much. But, um, <laughs> but she seems to expect her human friends to have hairless faces. Well, I'm just always so amazed because my husband, I refer to him as St. Francis because <laughs> all animals love him, but mm -hmm. dogs just love him right away, especially all my service dogs. Uh -huh. They all adore him. And so I was just wondering if there's something, some other attraction that you had found for people like that. Because, you know, we hear about people that dogs just gravitate to. And so that's why I was curious about that, if there was anything that made them more attracted to some people than others right away? Interesting, interesting question. We have not made a study of it ourselves, and I cannot think of anyone else who's looked at that particular question. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, clearly dogs see our behavior and react to that, but they also, of course, have this much more sensitive sense of smell than we do. And it's quite possible that different people are giving off different body odors at a level that we humans don't notice in each other, but the dog somehow interpreted mm -hmm. projecting a warm. One study I can think of and studies we've done a little bit of ourselves that I find interesting is just how quickly dogs can develop attachments towards people. So there was one study came out of Hungary dogs that were living in a very impoverished shelter environment. And the researchers found that if they just gave the dogs 10 minutes playtime with a particular person for three days, so three times 10 minutes, 30 minutes, then those dogs later showed a quite strong attachment towards that person. And I think that's much quicker than you would expect a human being to form an attachment to another human being. So yes. I think quick to form connections. Do you think some breeds love more than others? I think that's probably the case, Marcy. And some of my collaborators are looking into that now. Certainly, that is a traditional viewpoint, right? If you get the um, AKC book of the dog and you look at how they describe different breeds of dog, 
It's interesting. No breed of dog is described by the AKC as being unfriendly. They never use that term. <laughs> but some breeds of dog are described as being very outgoing and others are described as being more aloof and more interested in just a limited number of strong relationships. Now, of course, that's not based on any science, but it is based on many years, decades of experience. So it counts for something. And we are beginning to do studies looking at that question more scientifically. But it's actually a very big question when you consider that there are 200 or more breeds of dog and that there's plenty of variability within each breed. It's not like individuals from any one breed are clones. I mean, they're all individuals with their own personalities. So you need to test a fairly good number of dogs from each breed. And so it's quite a large project. So it's moving along slowly. That's really interesting. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors, but we've got a lot more to talk with Dr. Wynn about. So come right back after these quick messages. If you're attacked by a bear, a dog will throw himself into the mouth of a bear to save you. Dogs are dogs. They pour out their love onto you. Before long, you can't live without them. I have a chocolate cocker spaniel named Lady and a blackmouth cur. He's about 120 pounds, and his name is Arlo. My little cocker, her coat's as soft as a stuffed animal. They're both real soft coats, and my dogs don't have any health problems because they're eating what they need to eat. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Dynavite is like pouring a multivitamin right onto their food. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. We'll be scooping our Dynavite onto the food. Then squirting the liquor chops and the fish oil. They start salivating. Dynavite is nutrition. You won't believe how happy your dog will be. It's a lot of responsibility owning a dog. I get my Dynavite at D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio dot com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. We're visiting today with Dr. Clive Wynn about his new book, Dog is Love. And I just, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Wynn, you know, you mentioned your dog and how you developed your relationship. And I think you've even called her the book spirit animal. And I I do want to ask you, how did writing this book about dogs and love that has changed you? Oh, well, that's a great question, Marcy. I mean, I've always felt that we should treat our dogs gently and humanely. That seemed, that's always seemed self-evident to me. But what really struck me as I worked on the book and I collected the evidence for how dogs care about people, what really came home to me is that there is one practice that is very widespread in our culture that I've actually come to view as really quite cruel. And that is simply leaving dogs alone. You know, what people call, forgotten what people call it, <laughs> separation anxiety. Okay. Yeah. So what people call separation anxiety is actually the most widespread behavioral problem that people report about their dogs. And I've actually come to the view that it isn't a disorder in the dog. The point is that we take these animals and we love having these animals company because they are such highly social beings, because they clearly enjoy our company so much. 
And I've come to the view that it's cruel to take animals that we love for their social nature and then cut them off and leave them in solitary confinement while we're out at work and play for six, eight, 10, 12 hours a day. I think that's just unreasonable. I don't think we should be doing that. And um, in Sweden, there are actually regulations that say that you must not leave your dog home alone for more than four hours at a stretch. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should adopt Swedish law, obviously not, but I think people should think about this. And um, if you're considering getting a dog and you don't presently have one, you should look at the structure of your life and ask yourself, does my life actually have a dog-shaped space in it at this point? Not every life does. I am a university professor. I spend a lot of time around students. And as you can imagine, I often, people know what I'm interested in. People come and they ask my advice about getting a dog, what breed of dog and so on. And the first thing I do is I ask these young people, well, what's your life like? You know, what do you do during the day and during the evening? They're, at least at our university, you're not allowed to bring a dog into the university rooms. So what would you be doing with your dog while you're out of class? Do you spend every evening in bars with your friends? It's not presently, but typically. And if the answers to these questions are, well, yes, you know, Professor, I am out all day with my classes and then I do some sporting thing at the end of the afternoon and then I, you know, have a shower and then I go out with my friends to a bar or a restaurant. So I say, I don't honestly think your life has space for a dog at this point. That's one thing I talk to people about. And then, of course, I remind people that although your dog loves you, your dog, most dogs, easily form relationships with other people too. So it is possible to have a dog, even if you are out of work for eight or 10 hours a day, and use other people to help protect your dog from loneliness. You might hire somebody to just come by and take your dog out for a walk. You may have friends, neighbors who don't feel they're ready to have dogs in their own lives, but do love dogs and would just relish the opportunity to come around and hang out with your dog or take your dog to a cafe or something like that. And of course, there are doggy daycares as well, which can also provide your dog with companionship when you are unable to. So that, that to me has been something I have learned in the course of my studies, in particular in writing this book, that I think we need to protect our dogs from loneliness. I so agree with that. And, you know, I worry whenever I have a service dog retire and, you know, they're used to going with me all the time and then all of a sudden their life changes, their professional life has changed. And so I try to to do that in a way where they start working part-time, you know, so just like you said, so that I would try to work them four hours a day and then let them have the other four hours where they're not. But once they get, you know, once we get to the process of where they're at home all the time, I really worry about them being isolated. And so I do practice a lot of those things that you mentioned. I have somebody that comes by if I'm gone longer than four hours. That's so interesting you say that because that's kind of my boundary line is once I get over four hours, then I've got to have somebody to come by and take them out for a walk, take them out do something with them so they have some interaction. But I also make sure now that I have another dog with them all the time. So I have two dogs at home instead of one. Do you think that helps them to have another dog? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the thing is, um, this is one of the things I talk about in the book, right? So I often say, and I have been saying, as we've been chatting here, that dogs love people, that they have an exceptional desire and capacity to form strong emotional bonds with human beings. But actually, that's a misstatement. 
That's a misstatement because it's not about us. It's about them. Dogs have an exceptional capacity, desire, and drive to form strong emotional bonds with members of other species and, of course, with their own species. The crucial thing is, Marcy, what did the dog meet when it was a puppy, the individual dog in question? You have about three months early in life when a dog is learning what kinds of beings is it okay to form relationships with. Now, for us, we're human beings. The dogs we meet necessarily grew up around human beings, almost all of them. And so we're used to seeing dogs interested in forming relationships with human beings. But if you put a dog with goats, and for the book, I went and visited some goat ranches in the northeast of Arizona here, wonderful people, and they have dogs who hang out with the goats on the ranch and keep an eye on the goats and form emotional bonds with the goats. And this is an ancient, ancient human practice. Livestock guarding dogs have been around. They're mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, so they've been around for at least 3,000 years and the trick is simply that you put the puppy with the species of animal that you'd like this puppy to grow up wanting to take care of. And so the goat ranchers put their puppies with goats and the puppies grow up into dogs who seek out goats for emotional relationships, just as we're used to seeing puppies, dogs for looking to humans for relationships. The cutest example, Marcy, which I have not yet seen for myself, I write about it in the book. I'm determined to see this. There's an island off the southeast coast of Australia, which is home to a colony of penguins. Unfortunately, this island is not all that far off the coast. And at certain times of year, when there are exceptional low tides, foxes have been able to get onto the island and they've repeatedly decimated the poor little penguin population. There was a nearby chicken farmer who had free range chickens that were guarded by a livestock guarding dog. And he said, hey, you know, if these dogs will guard chickens, maybe they'll guard penguins. And that's exactly what they do now. They have these beautiful dogs who every summer spend their, when they were puppies, they were raised around penguins. And uh, now they spend every summer out on the island. They put kennels out there to protect the dogs from the climate. And yeah, so dogs have an amazing ability to form relationships with whatever they meet early in their lives. And so for yeah. Or dogs, that means other dogs. If a puppy is raised around cats, the puppy and the cats will get along fine. So, yeah, of course, other dogs. Well, yes. And let me ask you how can we, as someone who's being partnered with a working dog, how can we work, Dr. Wynn, to deepen our dog's love for us, especially as we're first partnered with a working dog? What would you suggest? to deepen that love? Well, that's an interesting question. As far as science knows, as far as science has been able to demonstrate, it is simply time together that brings the bond. Now, my guess is going to be that if we were to do more research, we would find that there is more to it than that. I'm going to guess that if you are the one who feeds your dog, probably the bond is going to develop faster than if you're not feeding the dog. Probably if you do activities together, the bond is going to develop faster than if you don't do activities together. But um, at this point, from us talking purely from what the science has demonstrated, all that's been shown is that just time together in close proximity together is all it takes. And it doesn't even take all that much time, at least in dogs who don't have many other alternatives. Mm hmm. 
That's interesting because that's definitely how I was trained when I've gotten my dogs is that I'm the only one that can feed them. I have to brush their teeth. I have to groom them. You know, all of those things that definitely have impacted the bond that I have with that service dog, which has made it much stronger. Well, and I also want to ask you, how can we work? What can we do to ensure that our working dogs really do have emotional well-being? What would you suggest for us to to be sure that we're supporting our working dogs' emotional well-being? That's a great question too. So I think, as I mentioned, not leaving them alone for extended periods of time, although, you know, in in the present circumstances, the coronavirus lockdown, there has been some discussion, somewhat joking discussion, but I think there is a serious point that dogs can become weary of being overstimulated. One thing that many people don't realize is that dogs need to have a lot more sleep in every day, in every 24-hour period. Dogs need a lot more sleep than a typical human being. I mean, we Mm -hmm. typically say that humans should have eight hours sleep, although a lot of us uh, would consider eight hours like an exceptionally good, (laughs) exceptionally good night. Well, There are surprisingly few studies, but the the studies that there are indicate that dogs need perhaps 14 hours sleep a day. So although although I've been saying that we must spend time with our dogs, we shouldn't leave them alone too much. On the other hand, a household where the dog is continuously being put perhaps under task demands as a service dog or continuously being, let's say, prodded and poked by children in a household who don't understand to leave a dog alone, it is important. You know, if you think if we're asleep for, let's say we're asleep for eight hours a day, our dogs need to be allowed peace and quiet for an additional six hours so that they get the sleep they need. We've been doing studies, Marcy, on dogs living in shelters and putting them into foster care. And we've been looking at what does the dog do when it gets out of the kennel and into foster care? Well, you know what they do for the first two days, Marcy? What? They just they sleep. sleep. They, they sleep. sleep two days <laughs> solid. Because the truth is the shelter environment is typically, not inevitably, but typically too noisy and they don't get as much sleep as they want and need for their psychological well-being. So it is also important to give our dogs space to rest. I agree with that. And I, I see that in my service dogs. If I have a really busy day that I have to really be mindful that they get the rest that they need because, I, and I also, especially as they're aging, that becomes more challenging for them. I know Lovey will tell me, she's like, look, I've had enough, <laughs> yeah. and, but I yeah. notice that like she'll start to scratch or she'll shake her body. You know, mm-hmm. there are different indicators that I know her and I know that her stress level is increasing and I need to make sure she has some time to really rest. Right, right. Well, our Zephos is not a service dog and probably just as well. But uh, with everybody being home all the time in the last so many weeks, it's noticeable that she sometimes, we have a fairly large home, and she sometimes creeps off to a quiet corner just so she can catch up on sleep and not have to talk to people all the time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and not be fabulous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I know we, we only have a little bit of time left, but I do want to ask you, Dr. Wen, you mentioned in the book about the significance in the kinship between dogs and people with Williams syndrome. Can yeah. you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. 
So I mentioned that uh, we've done some studies where we've compared, we've looked into the genetic material of the dog and compared it to the wolf to try and understand what changed in the journey from wolf to dog. We've identified three genes that have mutated in that journey that are responsible for the dog's exceptional gregariousness, exceptional friendliness and desire to form relationships with people and other species. And very interestingly, in our own species, in human beings, there's an extremely rare syndrome. Its full name is Williams-Buren syndrome. We usually just say Williams syndrome. And this syndrome involves 28 genes that become damaged. Very rare syndrome. 28 genes are damaged. And because there are so many genes involved, there are many different things that these people show. They have somewhat strange facial structure. They're usually intellectually disabled. They have heart problems. There are lots of different things. But the strangest feature of Williams syndrome is that people with Williams syndrome are super, super friendly. They have the most friendly, loving disposition. It's a very strange syndrome. Now, it turns out that the three genes that we showed have changed from wolf to dog are involved in this Williams syndrome. And they are actually three of the genes that are known in Williams syndrome to be responsible, not for the strange facial structure, not for the heart deficits or any of the other symptoms. No, they are responsible for this amazingly loving disposition that people with Williams syndrome have. So there's actually a connection between the loving nature of dogs and the exceptional loving nature that people with a very rare syndrome in our own species show. So that's quite an amazing thing. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for all the work that you're doing, Dr. Wynn. It's just wonderful. And the book is fabulous. It really is. Tell our listeners, how can they get more information about your work and your new book, Dog is Love? Sure. Well, so I um, I have a, a website, dogislovebook.com. And that uh, tells people a little bit about the book and how to get it and also provides connections to the research that's going on in my lab and all, all of the things that my people and I are up to. So dogislovebook.com is the place to go. Perfect. And we will definitely put that on our website so that our listeners can find you and the book. So thank you so much, Dr. Wynn, for being with us. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today and to read your incredible new book. Thank you, Marcy. It was my pleasure entirely. It was great fun chatting with you. And thank you, our listeners, for being with us. We love for you to join us, and we love to hear from you. So please keep those emails coming. And you know you can stay connected with us at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. And you can also stay connected with us by following Working Like Dogs on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know, Lovey and I love seeing your photos of you and your working dogs and the amazing work that you're doing every day together. So thanks so much for being with us and take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.